My name is Nate Aiken, uh, one of the ministers here. So thankful that you'd come out on this Sunday morning. A packed house, a good time to worship the Lord as we both end one year and then begin another. I'm going to hit on a few verses. Pastor Jay, a couple of weeks ago, looked at the life of Simeon. Today, I'm going to give our attention to a woman named Anna who comes right after Simeon uh, in, the, in the text. Now, we have basically everybody from two years old up in the room today. So I'm going to try to make this one of the shortest sermons in Open Door history, just to serve the parents in the room. But since we have so many students and kids in the room, I want to ask one question as we kind of begin to give our attention to the text this morning. And it's simply this, how do you like waiting on things? How did you like waiting on Christmas Eve for Christmas morning to come so that you could open your gifts? Or maybe sitting around with the whole family and each going one by one, and then you having to wait until you open your gifts. I'll admit, I, I'm not great at waiting on things. It's not my favorite thing to do. You guys know that I love Mexican food, and I've basically never had a bad time in a Mexican restaurant. The only time that I am even a little bit distressed is in the time between when I order queso and when queso actually comes to the table, and I can enjoy that golden bowl of sunshine. But waiting is a part of life. It's a part of Christmas, and the first Christmas is no different. In the first Christmas, the people of God, Israel, were waiting, they were anticipating, they were hoping for centuries for a Messiah to come and to, to deal with everything that had gone wrong in the Garden of Eden, which is why the, the first Christmas is still the best Christmas. And the first Christmas still represents the very best Christmas present ever given to anyone, one that is freely offered to us all. And that's why we still celebrate that event. We still celebrate that gift some 2,000 years later. And this morning, I want to focus in on one of the godly characters in the New Testament who was hoping for and waiting on this Messiah who would come to make all things right. This, this woman named Anna, because here in Anna, we get a picture of a saint who had abiding hope in the promises of God, even as she waited for them to come true. And so for us, for Christians who now live between the, the first and the second coming of our Lord, we have much to learn from this lady named Anna as we too wait with hope for what the Lord is going to do next. I want to read some of the context. This is why we're going to start in verse 8. And you'll see, particularly as I close today, why these verses are important. And then we'll read verses 36 through uh, 38 as we think about Anna herself. So let's give our attention to the Word. The doctor named Luke writes these events down, these historical events, but he does so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And here's what Luke writes. And in the same region where the shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel, there was an angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Now, verse 36, where we'll give most of our attention today. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. 
She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Father, we are thankful for your word. Father, now as we turn our attention to the book, Father, would you quiet our spirits so that we can hear from you? Father, now would I preach with confidence in your word for the good of your people, for the sake of the lost, and for the glory of your name? Father, I pray now that the word would speed ahead and be honored among us. Father, I pray that you would sanctify us in truth. For Father, we know your word is truth. Father, we seek your glory, so we seek your help. Would you help us now as we turn our attention to the book? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What gives you hope? Again, kids in the room, students in the rooms, parents. What gives you hope? You know, there's oftentimes you can kind of Google these kind of questions. I did that to see what brings people hope. And there were answers like this, education, hard-earned wealth, stories of human triumph. One poll from 2018 of what was called 105 Experts had as the number one answer young people and the number two answer technology. I guess they had never heard of AI or Gen Z. I'm mainly kidding about that, mainly. But what do the scriptures say about hope? What do they say about hope as we wait for the Lord? Jeremiah 17, 7 says this, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord. You see, hope has an object. That's what the scriptures will tell us. In the scriptures, hope is not a wish. It's not a wish dream. Rather, hope is a confident expectation in God to fulfill his promises, built off his unwavering faithfulness and mighty power. Hope, real hope, lasting hope, abiding hope is directed towards God and who he is and what he has already done and on the trustworthiness of his word and on his promises. And this morning we get the glimpse of a godly saint who has, who has built her hope on God and on his word. And because she has, she ends up reaping the reward of her hope. She ends up reaping the reward of where she has placed her faith. For indeed, we will see hope has not put her to shame. And it's my prayer as I've studied these, these verses that we will be spurred on by this saint, that we too will put our hope where she did. And by doing so, we will reap the reward of seeing Jesus face to face. Now, here's the context of what's happening in Luke 2. And again, uh, Jay hit on some of this a couple weeks ago. Joseph and Mary have taken the promised one. They've taken their son, Jesus, to the temple. And while they're there, they meet these two godly saints who have been waiting for the Messiah. They've been waiting for the one that Israel has been hoping in. Simeon has said of him, he has waited for the consolation or the comfort of Israel. And here with Anna, it says that she is awaiting the redemption of Jerusalem. And now in this encounter, they see comfort, they see redemption right before them in the face of this little child. Now we're going to spend most of our time focusing on Anna, but it's important to note that Luke is purposeful in including a twofold testimony about this child. Luke is intentional, including both a godly man and a godly woman as witnesses to what has happened here in Bethlehem and now in Jerusalem. 
He has done so expressly to validate that this child is truly the Messiah. This is truly the one that Israel has been waiting for. And now as we turn our attention to Anna, I want us just to see the four commitments that shape her in these two short verses. Four commitments that I pray will shape us as well. Because we're going to see that she's committed to the word, to worship, to witness, and to waiting. First one is that she's committed to the word. Look again at verse 36. And there was a prophetess named Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, and she was advanced in years. We learn from the text that she is a prophetess, which means she is sensitive to the revelation of God, or she's sensitive to God's revealed word. And this didn't just mean, as we see with other prophets, that she was in tune with the messages that God gave her directly, but rather it also meant she knew well the Old Testament. And so her prophetic role and her sensitivity to God's word made her both a reliable witness, but also one who was able to recognize this child for who he truly was. Anna, you might say, is strong in the word of God. And because she's strong in the word of God, she becomes a vessel for the word of God. She is a vessel for honorable use. Paul talks about it to the church at Thessalonica. He talks about the word speeding ahead through people and being honored. And that's exactly what's happening here with this woman named Anna. The text also says that she is the daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher, which has no real significance other than to validate this is a real historical event. This is a real event. This is not a made up story. Luke wants his readers to know, I'm not making this up. Anna was a real person who had a dad with a funny name. Don't get a lot of fanuels these days. But as we think about her commitment to the word, I think it's a helpful thing for us to think about at the close of one year and the, the beginning of a new chapter of 2024. Will we, will we be deep in the word so that we can then be vessels for the word? Because in these pages, there is power. We just listen to what the Bible says about itself. 2 Timothy 3, they are breathed out by God and make us wise for salvation. Isaiah 40, the scriptures stand forever. Hebrews 4, sharper than any two-edged sword. Psalm 119, they are a, a lamp for our path. 1 Peter, they remain forever. Isaiah 55, they will not return empty. Proverbs 30, all of it proves to be true. Psalm 19, they are perfect and they revive our soul. John 17, they are truth and they sanctify us. Matthew 5, none of it will pass away. John 10, they cannot be broken. Psalm 1, the, the blessed person delights in them. Psalm 12, they are pure. Proverbs 4, they are life for those who find them. Luther talks about this of the Reformation. He says this, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept... The word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. Commitment two, she's committed to worship. Look again at verse 36. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. All right, so what did we just read there? Well, the text is letting us know in a very kind way that Anna is old. She's advanced in years. She's well along in years. We learn a helpful tip, kids, from this text. If somebody asks you how old your grandmother is, you don't say she's old or she's this number. You just say she's advanced in years. <laughs> now, as to exactly how advanced Anna is, the text is a bit confusing. We do know that she was married for seven years and then she lost her husband. And now she's either 84 
or she's been a widow for 84 years, and that would put her closer to 100. I tend to lean towards the latter, which is why I think it's very fair for Luke to say she's advanced in years. And her age and the fact that she has been a widow for such a long time are meant to illustrate for us her devotion to the Lord. That she has committed herself to long-term faithfulness, to long-term worship. Her daily activities of prayer and fasting at the temple show she has been a devout and expectant worshiper of God for the duration of her life. In a present-day way, the way we might say this is, in a sense, Anna, she was in the church every single time the church doors were open. She was worshiping God. She was waiting on the Messiah. And brothers and sisters, teenagers in the room, children, we all know some Annas, right? We have some of them in this church. Luke mentions that she is a widow because he intends to show that she has chosen devotion to God over remarriage, and the Lord has sustained her and become to her her ultimate treasure. Now, the text is not pointing out that the, the, the point of the text is not that if you, you know, become a young widow that you have to stay like Anna and you can't get married. In fact, I can say to Kelsey, if, if I die, she is more than welcome to get remarried. I'd be tacky if she does, but she's perfectly free <laughs> to get remarried. Just make sure he's not better looking than I am. No, Luke is pointing this out in a descriptive rather than prescriptive way to highlight her sacrifice, to highlight her devotion, to highlight her worship of God, not just for a few years, but for a lifetime. And so another question before us as we move into 2024 is, will we be more devout worshipers in 2024? And for the duration of our life, will we view him as our highest treasure and our greatest good? The one who is worthy of our affection, so much so that we worship him and we worship him alone. Third commitment, she's committed to being a witness. We see this in verse 38. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Here's what's going on here. Anna has approached Mary and Joseph and she's approached the child Israel has been waiting for. And as she gets a glimpse of Jesus, it says immediately she gives thanks. Reminds me of the scene in Acts when Barnabas is sent by the church at Jerusalem to go down and check out what's going on at the church at Antioch. And it says, when he saw the grace of God, he was glad. This lady, Anna, when she saw the child, she was glad. She was thankful. She was rejoicing. One of the things we learn here is that our response, when we get a glimpse of Jesus, the songs we sing and the sermons we hear and the study and prayer we do every single day, one of our responses to seeing Jesus is certainly thanksgiving. Are you thankful this morning that Christ has appeared to you with great grace and great mercy? Now, her thankfulness and her gladness lead her to witnessing and to testifying about the Messiah. She begins to tell everyone around her. Her heart of thankfulness overflows into witness. And the question is, is that the same with us? The truth this morning is simply this. We speak of the things that we're thankful for. We commend the things that we cherish. We talk about the things that we treasure. My parents are here this morning. They have 15 grandkids. They're two newest ones. They're, they're two newest ones of their favorite, Ada and Rylan. <laughs> My parents can't help but talk about their grandkids. They can't help but post pictures of them because they love them, because they're thankful for them. They want to talk about each boy and each girl. They want to 
give gift cards to the newest one's parents to steakhouses and things like that. <laughs> the truth is, most of us in this room can't help but talk about our favorite sports team or our favorite Netflix show. The question is, by what we think about and what we talk about and what we post on social media, will people know that we cherish Jesus or so many other things? Will we be committed in 2024 to talking about the one who has delivered us from darkness into great light? Final commitment is waiting. Look at verse 38 again. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. In verse 38, we don't just see her witness. We also see the main point of the entire section. She and others have been waiting for this promised Messiah. She's been waiting for this long promised one who would bring redemption or bring freedom to God's people. And that's the most important truth you can hear this morning. It's simply this, whether you have followed Jesus for years or whether maybe this is the first time you've ever come into a church service, how you respond to this child will be the difference between ultimate comfort and ultimate condemnation. We see here in Anna, she's been patiently waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises that are found throughout the Old Testament, namely that one will come born of woman to crush the serpent's head, Genesis 3. He will be from the offspring of Abraham and he will bless all the families of the earth, Genesis 12 and 15. He will be from the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49. And he will be one of David's sons who will establish an everlasting kingdom, 2 Samuel 7 tells us. And the prophets tell us over and over again, he will free his people. He will free them from lifelong bondage to sin, to Satan, and to death itself. And gloriously, what Anna is seeing in front of her now, though most people walking by would not even recognize it, is that the true son of David has come, the, the son of David who will cut off the serpent's head and establish an everlasting kingdom that will be unrivaled. That's why we sing in this season things like this, Oh, come thou rod of Jesse, come and free us from Satan's tyranny. You see, kids and students in the room, parents, up to the most seasoned saints in the room, the main character in this story is not Anna, and it's not Simeon, but the main character in this story is the main character of the entire Bible. It's Jesus of Nazareth who has come to set the captives free. And for those Israelites who had eyes to see, they now know that their wait is over. You see, it would not matter at all if Anna were committed to waiting, if she was waiting on the wrong thing. It would not matter at all that she was committed to, to worship and to witness if the object of those commitments were all wrong. And the same is true of us. If our affections are placed on the wrong object of faith, then all is in vain. And it seems appropriate as we conclude this Christmas season, as we consider new year for us to then think about the object of our faith and to think about the staggering beauty of the incarnation and what he became for us and for our salvation. I love how the great Baptist preacher R.G. Lee captures the wonder of the incarnation when he writes this, Christ who in eternity rested motherless upon a father's bosom and in time rested fatherless upon a woman's bosom clasping the ancient of days who had become the infant of days. 
What deep descent from the heights of glory to the depths of shame, from the wonders of heaven to the wickedness of earth, from exaltation to humiliation, from the throne to the tree, from dignity to debasement, from worship to wrath, from the halls of heaven to the bales of earth, from the coronation to the curse, from the glory place to the glory place. Listen to this. In Bethlehem, humility and glory in their extremes were joined. Born in a stable, cradled in a cattle trough, wrapped in swaddling clothes of poverty. No room for him who made all rooms. No place for him who made and knows all places. The deep humiliation of the creator, born of the creature woman, in his descent was the dawn of mercy. Because we cannot ascend to him, he descends to us. No wonder Queen Lucy would say in the last battle of the Chronicles of Narnia, yes, in our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. The incarnation, what we celebrate at Christmas, was absolutely essential for the very redemption that Anna waited on. And how did Christ accomplish this redemption for Anna? How did he accomplish this forgiveness of our sins for us? Well, let's return to those shepherds we read about at the beginning. You know, it's interesting that most of the shepherds uh, throughout Israel had a specific purpose, but the ones in Bethlehem were different. Most of the shepherds raised sheep for the, for the meat and the wool that they could produce. But the shepherds in Bethlehem, they were different. Because they raised sheep that would be sacrificed on the altar at the temple as a plea before God for the forgiveness of sins. They were the lambs who would become the substitutionary sacrifice at the temple, suffering in the place of sinners and suffering the ultimate penalty of their sin, that being death itself. Jesus' birth is not just announced to any shepherds. It's announced to the shepherds of sacrifice because John so clearly tells us he is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. Listen to how one scholar tells it. The presence of the shepherds at the birth team of Jesus reminded believers today that Jesus was not born merely to incarnate deity and reveal God to us, though he certainly did that. No, the little child who was wrapped in the strips of swaddling cloth at his birth was born to be wrapped in strips of burial cloth after his crucifixion. The summons of the shepherds of sacrifice to Jesus' birth reminds us that Jesus was born for the night and the altar and the nails and the cross and that only by his shed blood can sinners have peace with a holy God. Friends in this room, the incarnation is not some fairy tale. The incarnation, the Son of God becoming man, is absolutely necessary for our salvation. For you see, in the incarnation and the cross that came from it, the only way to up both holiness of God while he also dealt with the sinfulness of man. By the Son of God becoming like us in every single way, yet without sin. And then so at the cross, his Father could be both just in dealing with sin, but also become the justifier of sinners who have had faith in Jesus. How do we know then his, he can accomplish our redemption? How do we know that his substitutionary sacrifice was good and accepted by God? And that's very simple. Christ has abolished death. On the third day, the son of David was vindicated by being raised from the dead. He now sits at God's right hand. And think about this in light of the incarnation. Think again how staggering this is. The throne of God is now occupied by a man. 
The throne of God now has a man who sits on it, who has scars on his hands and human blood running through his veins. His name is Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, revealed to Anna. And he is unlike every other God, every other religion tries to tell you about because no other God has scars like he does. So what is our response? Where should true and ultimate hope be directed? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you don't know Jesus the way we do. We want you to know that comfort, that consolation, that redemption, being made right with God, all of that is available in Christ and in Christ alone. Will you put your trust in him? Will you put your hope in him? Will you place ultimate hope in the only one who has dominion over death and who upholds the world by the word of his power? I know those of us in this room that are Jesus's people, we're staking everything we have on that. And then believers, what is our response? Well, I simply hope that it means that we'll be like Anna. We see here a godly woman who was devout, who was diligent in her waiting. And though a widow, most of her life, she did not become bitter. And despite being older, she still had great hope. She trusted in God. She worshiped God. She gave thanks to God. And she told others about him. And now we are called to wait in a similar way to Anna. We wait upon the future promises of God to be fulfilled. The question is, in our waiting, will we be faithful and devout and worshipers like she is? We wait for another Christmas. We wait for the time that this one will return, will once again put his feet on earth's soil. He will come back to make everything right. But we wait with even more revelation than Anna had. You see, Anna never saw him give sight to the blind. Anna never saw him have a compassionate touch for the leper. He, she never saw him feed thousands with a few loaves. She never saw him teach with authority. She never saw him set his face like flint to the cross. And she never saw him vacate a grave in the Middle East. But we have. So we will long for his coming in the same way Anna did, with the same sort of devotion and commitments that she has, remembering that past-kept promises are simply a foretaste of future grace. And then, brothers and sisters, there is a great reward for those who wait patiently in the same way Anna has and with the same kind of hope. For Peter will tell the elect exiles in 1 Peter, prepare your minds for action. And being sober-minded, listen to this, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation or coming of Jesus Christ. And then Paul says it like this in Romans, therefore, since we have been justified by faith we have peace with god we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of god then listen to this not only that but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You see, brothers and sisters, hope has a name. And that's why we sing things like this. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We dare not trust the sweetest friend. We wholly lean on Jesus' name. Father, we're thankful for your word. 
a word that is able to make us wise unto salvation through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray if there's anyone here who does not know him in a saving way, that they will be drawn to him, both through the singing, through the preaching of the word, and now through the Lord's Supper. And then, Father, now as we kind of conclude the Christmas season, Father, we still cry with the church throughout the ages, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray that our Emmanuel will return and that we would witness that final day of the dwelling place of God being with man when every single tear will be wiped away and all things will be made right. Father, in the meantime, we again desire your glory, so we need your help. Would you help us now? Would you conform us to the image of Christ by beholding him in song and in preaching and in the ordinance? Father, may we be made like him in every way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.